Good morning and welcome to Our American Heritage. I am Art Chandler, the host of the program. Our American Heritage is a program where we explore in depth the American experience from its beginning to the present. And this morning, we want to welcome as our very special guest, Mr. Paul Sanborn. Paul, welcome to the program and thank you for coming. Thanks, Art. Glad to be here. Well, listeners, I want you to know that anything that I've ever done in my educational career, uh, it goes to two people as a credit. One is my wife, and the second one is to Mr. Paul Sanborn. I consider Paul my mentor. He actually literally saved my teaching career after my first year of teaching through his courses that I took at the Freedoms Foundation. And I have learned a tremendous amount from this man over the years, of which I will be eternally grateful to Paul for all that he has encouraged me to learn and study and set me in a direction that I look back on my career and I'm very grateful that Paul was a part of my teaching career and still was part of my life as we have dinner together. So, Paul, would you share a little bit of your educational background with our listeners before we start into your topic? I graduated from Villanova. I was NROTC, a Russian major, Russian studies major, and I uh, was a commissioned a Marine Corps officer in 1968. I have a master's of philosophy from University of Westchester, Pennsylvania, specializing in Marxist-Leninist thought. I have an MBA from St. Joseph's University, specializing in management and accounting. I have a master's of educational leadership from Cheney University, and that's a K-12 principalship. And uh, I have a master's of arts in intelligence and land warfare from American Military University. And then I pretty and don't want to picked up over the years in various other areas. And Paul, what landed you particularly in American history or history as a discipline with all the different degrees that you possess? Well, it's funny, I don't have a degree in history. Some people are surprised to hear that, but Basically, history is a tool in my toolbox. It's well used over the years, but I'm not a professional historian. I'm a professional intelligence analyst. And I started out in pre-med at Villanova and very quickly realized I didn't have much of a future in pre-med, especially since my first GPA freshman year was a 195, uh, <laughs> which was something of a drop from usually a three to four range, you know, that I was in high school. So I went into a special program that through contacts that I had through Devon Prep, which at that time was purely an Eastern European high school. The priests who ran Devon Prep were all from the satellite countries in the Russian-dominated Eastern Europe, and they fled, uh, particularly around the time of the Hungarian Revolution. And uh, when they got here, they came into contact with officials from this country who debriefed them and so forth, and basically helped them get started with the school, along with Cardinal O'Hara, who was the prelate in charge of the Archdiocese of Philadelphia at the time. And I arrived at their school because my best friend went there, and I decided to follow in his footsteps. He was a couple years ahead of me. And so I went to Devon behind him, and that's where I got opened up to communism and Russia and Eastern Europe and so forth. And I've always been interested in human behavior, understanding human behavior, motivation, leadership, and so forth. And that's my true passion. And I became a, you know, a Russian area intelligence analyst for the Navy as a contractor, civilian contractor. And that's basically how I got started. I, I didn't really care about litmus paper turning blue or red. I didn't care much about how many bones are in the body. That wasn't my passion, but my passion is trying to understand capacity 
abilities, motivation, and such matters on a national level or international level. So that's how I got started. And uh, I use history as a tool because history, of course, like many subjects, uh, history goes into all areas of human endeavor. Mm -hmm. You know, when you go to a doctor, they may not know it and the patient may not know it, but first thing a doctor says when they meet you for the first time is they want to know your history. And the history of your health is important for that doctor to have at their fingertips when they make suggestions and prescriptions and therapies and treatments and so forth to help you maintain your health. So they use history. In business, it intelligence, you know, it's intelligent work, marketing, doing all kinds of marketing research to find out what your competitors are doing, what your customers want. That's all intelligence gathering and analysis. So uh, what I do is I try to teach the kids, which I'm doing still as a volunteer at Devon Prep, I try to teach the kids that history and intelligence work is common to just about every field of human pursuit. I mean, carpenters, electricians, plumbers, everybody comes into a situation and they want to know the history. They want to analyze it. They want to get data and process that data and present it to their customer. And that's what we do in the intelligence field. So for me, it is true that I never worked a day in my life because I've loved what I've done for 56 years. And that's about the truth. And listeners, if any of you see or are familiar with the Freedoms Foundation and the courses that are offered there, Paul, I believe that you were the founder of those courses many, many years ago. And you taught those summer courses for 40 years, I believe. Is that, is that the- Yeah, 40 plus. 40 plus. And um, yep. I was fortunate enough to take Paul's courses beginning after my first year of teaching. And as I said to you, that it radically changed my teaching all throughout the rest of my personal teaching career and still what I do today. So I owe a tremendous debt of gratitude to Paul for what he has done for me on a professional level and on a friendship level. And a lot of us have dinner together about once every six weeks or so, and my wife also was very grateful to Paul because it gets me out of the house and gets me out from underneath her hair. So <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. Yes. So retired, uh, you know, too, and my wife had the same feeling. So yes, <laughs> she does. But she comes to the dinners. God bless her. So yes, she does. She does. So Paul, begin to talk about the topic that you share with me for in the interest of our listeners and. The floor is yours to begin to share with us the information that you have for us today. And interrupt me at any time if you want something, you know, uh, explained further or question of curiosity or whatever, uh, just interrupt me. I've been concerned about our politics and the way society's been going the past couple of decades. And one of the things that I hear a lot about are these conspiracy people, theorists who you know, seem to land on all these conspiracy theories up and down the East Coast, you know, everywhere. And one of the primary goals in high school education is to try to sensitize the students to the idea of critical thinking and not to tell them what to think, but basically to give them resources to think about things in a way that's not obvious. That, you know, the obvious answer is not always the best answer or even close to the truth. There's a, a number of ideas that follow upon this. One is history, of course, is exciting. It's not the memorization of date. You have to know something to practice history, but history is the interpretation of what we do know. Mm -hmm. And that, what we do know, what we think we know is always, usually always, from the testimony of others, others who have experienced the event that they're writing about. And very few people, and you can just think about this today, very few people in positions of leadership with responsibility 
will come out publicly and say, listen, I blew it. I'm wrong. I was wrong. I was an idiot. You know, that's it. I'm sorry. Uh, very few people do that. When they write their accounts, many, many people, if not most and all, try to make themselves look better, try to cover their ass, and they try to, you know, deflect or blame others. And a historian, intelligence analyst, has to wade through all of that, all that disinformation. So uh, we want them to think critically, and, we and it's not an easy process to learn. And we don't want them to just follow every conspiracy coming down the road. Now, what I'm teaching, what I've been teaching for a bit now, is a Cold War seminar. And we take our seniors and juniors and some sophomores, and we put them in a class, and we have the seminar that goes the whole year. It's a minor elective. And we emphasize 1945 with previous events tying in, like the unification of Germany in the 1870s or the World War I and the destruction of the Tsarist regime, Romanov regime in Russia. And we go from 1945 until 1991. And then today, with today's class, we're doing some continuation of the Cold War Part Two or Chapter Two that uh, we've had like a recess period. We've had a halftime since 1991, but now we're back into a Cold War situation where China and Russia, Iran, North Korea are trying to counter the effectiveness and the power of the United States and its allies. So we're doing that, and the first unit, because we just got back in school, the first unit I'm handling, because my colleague Jack Duffy is the main teacher since I'm retired, so I come in and, and add to the classes, I hope, some of the details that Jack Duffy doesn't necessarily know. And I wanted to go over conspiracy with the kids in the beginning of the class and take a Cold War example of a conspiracy. And so I have a, a real one. When it happened, when the conspiracy happened, I'm sure it's dining room table conversation for everybody <laughs> the thing, audience. You, you know what? You'll immediately ring true to you. I was in the Marine Corps training and basic training to become an officer when this event occurred. And being in the Navy and Naval Intelligence, ONI, I'm involved, not in this actual event, but I worked with people over the years who were alive and involved with this event. And a definite conspiracy existed, one on a basic level and then two on an upper level. I suspect the upper level has a lot of questions behind it. And just like with everything, I can't tell you what happened. It is still classified to this day. And uh, that's some 57 years, 56 years since the actual event. But I'm just giving you an interpretation, and I cannot possibly, in the time we have, go over every detail. But most of what I'm saying to you, I hope, is true, or at least partially true, or whatever. Mostly true, partially true, not all true. And some of it may just be false. And the interpretations differ. So I'm just going to raise some questions in your mind, and then you can, as we tell the kids, and we give them assignments to do, but you can go on your own and explore this topic at your own leisure, I'm talking about the Liberty, the USS Liberty. And the USS Liberty was in the Western Mediterranean. It was a World War II victory ship that had been converted into an intelligence gathering ship for signals intelligence, which is radio transmissions and so forth. And it had a number of translators on board. It had sailors on board. It had NSA and intelligence analysts on board. And basically, in June of 1967, it was off the coast of the Sinai, 12 and a half miles out into the Mediterranean, which means that it was, in fact, in international waters, according to the standards of the time. 
And the ship was, most people don't know this, it was, it is, it is the most decorated United States huh. ship in history in a single action. And they didn't even win. <laughs> and they didn't do well because they were attacked and they weren't armed to fight. And uh, the Israelis really hit them. They were hard. So this is what we're talking about. We're talking about a real conspiracy now, not some ridiculous thing or mystical thing or magical thing. This is the real thing. And it was real to the men on board, many of whom died. And just to make sure that we know just what we're talking about here on this, on the score at the end, we had 31 Navy personnel killed, murdered, two Marine Corps personnel murdered, killed, and one at day civilian contractor killed. Huh. And we had 174 wounded. And this is out of a crew of 294. Oh. So right away, 294, there were 208 casualties. 208 casualties. And out of 294, 70% casualty hmm. rate. So it was a bloodbath. And basically, there was no damage inflicted on the attacking force, which was the Israelis. So that's uh, that, uh, the, the, uh, the casualty count, which is very high, which is why so many decorations were awarded, because everybody who was killed and wounded got a purple heart. So right off, you had 208 purple hearts awarded. So the Liberty was a surveillance ship was working for ONI and National Security Agency, was doing technical research, which means it was sweeping the uh, telegraph, telegram, telephone waves and radio waves and any kind of satellite transmissions they could pick up, anything. They would try to collect it and then analyze it briefly, but then send it on to Washington for the intelligence agencies to analyze, process it, and present it to the government. And that's what it did. It, its call sign was Rockstar. And it was, as far as we know, according to the USS Liberty Survivors Association, uh, which there are fewer now than there were a couple years ago, because it's been 56 years since the event, according to the survivors, this operation for the Liberty was part of Operation Cyanide. And within the Operation Cyanide, one portion of it was the North Woods portion. The North Woods portion is what I'm really concerned about here. And just very briefly, in 1967, the Israelis found themselves surrounded by an ever-growing, powerful Arab force. They had Syria in the north, they had Jordan on the east, and they had Egypt on the southwest. And all three were getting weapons, training, and all kinds of support from the Russians. And this was part of the Cold War, and we were mired in Vietnam. We were fully involved in Vietnam, 1967. That's, you know, six months before Tet, the Tet Offensive which is one of the hallmark events of the Vietnam War and marked actually the height of, I guess, the height of our power there. Because uh, although we tactically on the ground won Tet, it changed a lot of people's minds about the war. And that's when protests really started to build up after Tet was concluded. So the Israelis decided to be the aggressors and cut off before they were overwhelmed, cut off their opponents at the knees. And what they did was they attacked. They attacked Egypt, they attacked Syria, and they attacked Jordan. And out of this war, and it lasted six days, and that's why it's called the Six-Day War, out of this war came the Golan Heights in the north from Syria and the West Bank from Jordan and parts of the Sinai and the Gaza Strip, parts of Egypt from Egypt. 
And one of the things that really helped the Israelis, and they did not have this capability, and that's why the United States did it, we provided them with overflight intelligence called FOTIN, photographic intelligence. We provided them with full and complete intelligence on these Egyptian airfields and the placement of their airplanes and ammunition bunkers and so forth. So we gave this to the Israelis, and when the Israelis initiated the war, they were able to wipe out the Egyptian Air Force and its supporting logistical tail. And that was an incredible advantage for the Israelis. The Egyptians just couldn't bomb them, you know, couldn't get at them without an Air Force. And the Egyptian Air Force was the best of the three Arab powers there surrounding Israel mm-hmm. at the time. So what happens is the, this is now the, this event occurs on the fourth day of the six days. And the war will end on the sixth day because on the sixth day, Israel had succeeded in getting the Golan Heights, which they have not returned since, and the West Bank. And you know, there are two hot spots <laughs> even today and have been for the last 56 years. So we had this intelligence ship off the coast and they were picking up data. However, they had no translators for Hebrew. They were picking up Arabic and they were picking up Russian. And they were picking up the basic, you know, Italian and Turkish, some of those other languages, but they were primarily concerned with Russian, Egyptian, Jordanian, and Syrian communications. We were not monitoring, per se, the Israeli government or its military at that time. So, on board, there were three NSA contractors who were Arabic, and there were three marine translators, two Arabic and one Russian. And that was Bruce Lockwood. He was the man uh, who was the marine intelligence translator in Russian for the uh, Liberty. He went to the defense language school and he was an E6, which is the equivalent, well, as a staff sergeant. And uh, he was in the main room, the uh, collection room of the Liberty when it was attacked and was a hero, what he was able to do. And one thing he did was he survived because about 25 people were killed immediately in mm at one time when the torpedo came and hit Liberty. So anyway, the three Marines, two Arabic, one Russian, okay. And then we had an NSA translator who was involved with Arabic. And then six more linguists were added uh, before the ship got to the Mediterranean. It came from Africa, uh, West Africa, around through the Gibraltar, uh, Strait of Gibraltar, and took station off the coast of Egypt, Sinai, because of the Six-Day War. So they added six more translators, linguists, to the uh, Liberty. And uh, three were NSA people, Arabic, and three Marines were Russian and Arabic. So now we're mainly monitoring the Arabic, uh, you know, the Arab tra- the Ab- Arab transmissions. Well, if you don't mind me jumping in here, one of my questions to clarify for some of our listeners is when you talked a, a few minutes ago about the Cold War. The, it, it, was there a certain event in 1945? I have a couple questions for you. Was there a certain event that actually started the Cold War, or was it just an evolution coming out of World War II? Well, you know, there's very difficult questions to answer simply. The, the fact is that there was no love. Uh, you know, the communists, the Russians, Stalin, had no love for the Americans. Mm-hmm. and did not trust us and felt that there was a very good reason why they trust us. And, you know, the fact that Hitler was allied with Russia, with Stalin, Soviet Union, when Germany attacked Russia, uh, Russia had basically tried 
fulfill all of the treaty agreements uh, for supplying uh, Germany with, with various goods that Germany needed to conduct the war, particularly against France and England, Belgium, etc., Netherlands. Uh, basically, they needed help, the Germans, and uh, the Russians. And Stalin uh, knew that like, and Nazi Party is formed mainly to fight communism, and then later Jews. And they really put on a fight, you know, against these communists in, in, in the Second World War, once they invaded Russia, Soviet Union. So, um, with that, uh, with that being the case, uh, Stalin wanted to try to keep Hitler under control until Russia could rearm. They had purged their military in the 1930s. They eliminated a lot of general officers. They basically decapitated their general staff, and they were in disarray. And Stalin knew that if he didn't buy time, that Germany would attack him and Russia would have no chance of survival. So th there was no love loss between the two. And the fact that they were allies didn't mean that Stalin trusted Hitler or that Hitler loved Stalin. The two of them were enemies, but they came together for convenience. And uh, when the Allies, you know, declared war against Germany, uh, this Churchill was suspicious of Russia. The Soviet Union didn't want to be involved with them. I tried to fight the war without their help, but uh, and had to. <laughs> uh, he had to for Great Britain uh, until Germany attacked Russia. When Great Britain found itself allied to Russia fully, Soviet Union, uh, as the United States, when we came into war, we had no great desire to ally ourselves with the Russians, but we needed them, and they needed us. So it was another marriage of convenience. This is where the Cold War, I mean, it had been simmering, and, and this gets very involved in the, in the history of Europe. It, 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 once Germany unified, and once Italy unified, which were two combatants against the rest of Europe in World War II, once they unified, they became viable aggressors to be in the race for colonies, imperialism. And, you know, some people say that's really what was the foundation of the Cold War, that uh, it came from the unification of Germany and Italy. They got into the race of colonies and the race for empire late, and they wanted to move as quickly as they could. They moved to Africa. They moved to Asia. Uh, it was just, you know, it was just very, very different, a different world in Europe from uh, they upset the balance of power that was established by the Congress of Vienna in 1850. And so... Once that balance of power was overthrown, uh, then, you know, every man for himself. Right. We're facing a similar condition today. There's the balance of power, and it's being challenged. And, you know, China, right now, they're involved in a major military operation in and near and around Taiwan. And we've been doing operations there for much of the summer, and now the Chinese have made an aircraft carrier and 20 of their surface fleet, plus God knows when a submarine and they're floating around out there, and they very well could, I mean, you know, you don't know, they could very well attack Taiwan. Uh, and uh, they'll be looking, everybody will be looking at the election in 2024, see what happens, who wins, uh, what happens in Congress, and what's America going to do? Are they going to remain steadfast before the Ukraine, or are they going to retreat back into isolationism? Uh, Paul, unfortunately, I'm going to have to interrupt you here because we're up against time for this segment of the show. Yep. So we're going to pick it up, continuing your story in our next broadcast. 
So, Paul, thank you for coming and sharing the beginning of this story and the liberty and what happened to our ship in 1967 and Six Day War. And we look forward to you continuing your study in our next show. So, Paul, thank you for coming and, and sharing with our listeners today. Okay, Arch, thank you very much, and I'll see you in the second segment. Okay, great. Thank you so much for coming. This is WFYL 1180, Working for Your Liberty.